right. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. What is up, everyone? I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening and watching another epic episode of Untold Stories, where together twice a week, we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, brilliant folks, those who, who truly can explain you know, what we're doing and the why. And so today's episode, we'll be able to talk a little bit more of like the the philosophy and the ideology behind, you know, some blockchains and networks and things like that. But, you know, to truly understand how this all came to be and and where we're going in the future. So it's been it's been really exciting. And now kind of summer summertime is is ending. It's the Labor Day weekend here in the U.S. And this is traditionally when everyone's going back to work. Kids are going back to school. Um and there's like a changeover. So you'll see, we, we'll see a lot of things that were built over the summertime uh, when it's a little bit more quiet. A lot of people met their friends. They went out to the beach. Hopefully you're, you live in a place where you could continue going to the beach. Uh, but you brainstormed. You had some immense conversations with people. You came up with some new ideas this summer. You know, figured out who you are, what you are, what you want to be, all these different things. And I wish you guys uh, the greatest speed ahead on that. And together... We're going to be, you know, as the, the fall and winter comes and the rest of the winter, hopefully we're not seeing a crypto winter. We're seeing our like, you know, what we call crypto spring. And Dr. Sebastian Burgel, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today. Thank you, Charlie, for having me here and talk about like this topic that I think we're both very passionate about. How was your weekend? Oh, it was wonderful. I was uh, just recovering, coming back from Stanford, where it was the Stanford Blockchain Week. So. Yeah, recovering from from jet lag coming over back to Europe. I remember going to uh, to visit Stanford uh, for the first time in 2012 or 2000. It was 2012, 100% actually. And um, there was no blockchain lab or anything like that. It was the only people talking about Bitcoin. I remember because my friend Ryan Singer was like, one of these people, I forget what it's called when you get paid by a university to just do research and stuff. And now he's one of the founders of Chia. Um, but, and it was out of the, like the only place we talked about Bitcoin, because there's no Bitcoin lab or Bitcoin education or academic, like anything. It was out of the, like the, the green, it was like, what did they call it? It was, um, it was like the make the world great initiative or something like that. Like a piece, it was like out of the peace office or, so what's it like now? It was amazing. So this week there was this. Uh, there were uh, multiple events happening there where people talked about, you know, more the security of different crypto networks and and DeFi specifically. So um, I found it amazing because you know, in the meantime, starting from the early, like in contrast to the early days that you just described, we see all these more marketing heavy events where you know, so you see flashy booths and people showing you their latest and greatest NFTs and stuff like. None of that was there, right? So I really appreciated being in Stanford where people really care about the technology, really care about making this stuff better and safer for everyone and like having people who are really deeply intellectually engaged in the space there. So that was absolutely phenomenal to see. What, I mean, what type of uh, things were, were people talking about if you don't, a, a lot, because that's a good way to measure where we are in any of these crypto cycles, it's like, what is going on at these conferences? What are people talking about? What are they exhibiting about? So you definitely feel like it wasn't that like bull market NFT hype. It was more academic and things like that in nature. 
Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. So uh, the events this week were mostly around security. And, you know, there's a lot of things we still have to improve, especially on smart contract security, um, to, you know, make this Web3 Wonder World safe for everyone. And, um, yeah, so there were would be auditors that would present some of the, you know, latest exploits and, and some new things. And, you know, how do you generally have to behave to write smart, like, safe, smart contract code? Uh, so, like one one thing, I think that was actually the title of Sumption. I don't I don't know how to pronounce his name actually. Anyway, oh yeah, this, I think I know that company too. Yeah, this 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 anonymous kid that was just like uh, you know providing all these crazy uh, zero days and then sending you a message that just says you up and you know if this guy is sending to you a message like you better be up because it's serious. So that's, that's crazy. That was, that was great to see. It was great to see, see these folks for real. It was great to see that there's people really focusing on what we can do to make this ecosystem safe for everyone and really think about what sort of tooling and what sort of changes to the infrastructure we need to do uh, to make things, you know, to have less hacks, to have less money that gets exploited in like bridge hacks. And like we've seen crazy hacks this year, right? So in yeah, the last 12 months, there have been like the, the number of north of $100 million hacks has been insane. So that has to end. And there's people really dedicating a lot of resources to that. That's fantastic to see. I want to continue this conversation. I just want to give a, a quick brief intro on you. You're the founder and president of the of the Hopper Network, you know, a, a Switzerland-based uh, lab uh, building out this whole new, you know, it, it's, it's unfair to say it's like a, another on-chain privacy solution it's more of a, a, a whole network layer protocol that allow users to exchange all, to, you know, all sites, all sorts of data and transactions and things like that privately in the same veins as Tor that was founded by, uh, I think like the U S department of, of the Navy and, and kind of on that, on that thread, are people talking about privacy in these settings? Is, is that even a conversation anymore? Because the ethos of why Bitcoin was even created was, you know, had this idea of, of removing this disenfranchisement from people. So, so privacy was and still is such a huge deal. Yeah. Um, so absolutely, people do talk about privacy. I think it's uh, these days a very hot topic and we can probably cover some of that a little bit later. Um, so especially these days, people do talk about privacy because it has been brutally brought to our attention that, you know, it's, like this, this previous bull market has been cool, right? It was NFT, it was DeFi, and everything was super flashy. But people forgot about the underpinnings of the space, exactly like you mentioned, Charlie, right? So decentralization and privacy are things that have definitely not been in the foreground during the bull market, right? And now after these tornado cash sanctions where um, the U.S. Treasury, for the very first time in its history, is censoring code that is not controlled by a human or by a corporation, but it has put software code on the sanctions list, which is completely crazy, right? Um, so now that we see that, people are thinking, and holy shit, what are we actually doing here? And people are, in fact, and that was also like in many of the discussions present in Stanford last week, we're actually not building you know, this Web3 so that we can make flashier NFTs, which we can trade for more money faster but we are actually building resilient infrastructure that does need to build on decentralization and privacy in order to uh, provide for censorship resistance, right? 
And it's to me is something very important uh, to to point that out to people because many are not aware of that. Like we talk about censorship resistant, we take it for granted, right? Censorship resistant is the whole thing that crypto offers. Like crypto is shittier in almost every other regard. It's slower, it's more expensive, it's shittier UX. The one thing that crypto is good at is being censorship resistant. And for enforcing censorship resistance to be in control of things, right, means we need decentralization and we need privacy. So yeah, it was a topic in the context of these tornado cash sanctions and in the context of multiple security issues that come up if you do not have privacy. So yeah. You know, the the tornado cash situation was probably one of the first shots across the bow, as you say, you know, when two two ships are are about to to shoot their cannons, you know, yeah. at each other, they shoot that first one over. And it's definitely going to be a different situation. It has reignited that that conversation because privacy is not anonymity. It's a very different thing. We're not talking about when it comes to anonymity of financial transactions. We're talking about censorship resistance for all of your data. It's the inability for a for any one party, whether it be a a, co- a corporation like Facebook or a governmental organization. The ability for for no one, no one party to amend your data or your transactions, reverse them, control them, freeze them, or disenfranchise you, remove you as a human being from the larger financial and data world, which is what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to give a, a completely even playing field for everyone. Yeah, we're trying to be inclusive and giving people liberty, right? And you should have the liberty to do with your money and with your data what you want to. And, you know, I mean, just just one little anecdote uh, from from my life that made this very apparent. Um, I've uh, I've co-founded a fintech before uh, working on uh, on Hopper here. And this fintech, like, you know, just like many other fintechs needs to connect to the banking world. And, you know, I was talking to this architect of a large Swiss based bank that even invested in our company. And this guy who's been working there, it took me two months to get to this meeting, right? And finally, I have this meeting with this head architect of that bank to integrate our little fintech. And this guy would not even disclose how the interface works that we need to integrate our service, right? So it's not, of course, he doesn't grant yeah. me access, but he doesn't even tell me how it looks like. And that shows to me innovation must be and, and will be unleashed by crypto in a magnitude that is so much greater than the traditional world has ever seen, building on free and open source software and having this freedom to innovate. And that is to me something that is incredibly powerful. And it's just one of the reasons why I really bet on this whole crypto movement, starting with Bitcoin, on why it will just eat the world. There's just no other way around it. If you're just thinking from this innovation perspective and unleashing the full power of innovation that crypto does with permissionless innovation, open systems, and open source software. In your, in your opinion, you know, going down the, the road of, of different types of privacy coins, and we could talk about the different types because, and you'd almost have to break them, break them in, break them down into, you have networks like Zcash that have, that are normal, like you, like you would say, blockchains that allow for private transactions. And then on the other side, you have other networks like Monero that are all 
kind of private all the time. And, you know, Monero has been targeted by, by different governments around the world. I think it's been outright banned. Kind of t- take us into, tell me the differences between the two and, and you know, in your view, and, and we can kind yeah. of lead into Hopper as well. Yeah, exactly. So I see, I, I see also an, an another angle. So we have we have privacy coins like Monero or Zik, uh, like like Monero Zcash are two of the ones you mentioned, which is kind of like base layer privacy. You can basically do something like Bitcoin. You can send money from A to B, but you can do so in a private fashion, right? And as you mentioned, um, that is in, in Zcash, you know, you don't necessarily have money always in private mode, right? You can opt out from this privacy mode or as they call them, shielded transactions. Uh, so if unshielded transactions, then you know they're, they're visible just like Bitcoin transactions are publicly visible. And But the recent developments that I find pretty interesting is to see there's a lot of innovation in that space, right? So on-chain privacy evolves. And interesting. we've seen general purpose privacy um, networks. Uh, one, like two that I would mention is... Uh, Dusk and Secret Network. So these are two oh, yeah. these are two contenders which are working towards general purpose privacy, not just sending money from A to B, but you can build stuff on it, right? So that's that's very interesting. And the third one that I would delineate from that is um, kind of privacy L2s working on top of Ethereum. So in a nutshell, this word L2, which stands for Layer Two means it's a network that inherits the security guarantees of Ethereum. So basically, you don't, they don't need to kind of launch their own coin in order to guarantee the security of transactions, but they inherit that from Ethereum. That's what makes them kind of you know, uh, easier and, and safer. So these layer two privacy things are, are also happening there. So... That is how I would delineate it. So we have privacy coins, we have this general purpose privacy networks, and then we have private L2s. But all of that is touching effectively on-chain privacy, right? So all of that is for making stuff that is on-chain private. And in contrast, what we're doing at Hopper is saying, hey, okay, this is cool if you have stuff that on-chain, which is perfectly private, but you know, how does data actually get to the chain? Hmm. So these entry and exit points to access the chain must also be private. And that's what we, that's what we provide at Hopper. Maybe as a picture, if you're thinking about it, when you interface any blockchain, you're having a wallet, right? And your wallet is transmitting data to some, uh, you know, to some, some server that might be running a Bitcoin node, an Ethereum node, a Monero node, whatever it may be. And a communication between these two pieces of infrastructure, which typically go across the web, should also be private bringing data privately from A to B. And that is what we're doing at Hopper to build, as you said in the beginning, Charlie, uh, this general purpose data relay infrastructure to privately bring data from A to B, from my Bitcoin wallet to some you know, Bitcoin uh, node that some, some mm. service provider might provide for me or for whatever other application that I might have. So this protocol could be used with something like Bitcoin or another another blockchain for Absolutely. for like you would say last mile encryption because yeah I mean we're still operating in in a web 2 world you know with websites and computers and things like that NFTs or whatever smart contracts are just still very niche and most people there's you know very single single percent of the population probably knows how to even even knows what we're talking about but 
this is really interesting because do you see, I could imagine Hopper being almost like the uh, a layer on top of all other blockchains and almost being relied upon to transmit all the data and being like a settlement of data of all the different chains and their ledgers and things like that. Yeah, exactly. I always see as as a foundation, right? So under the blockchain, before you hit the blockchain, like you need to like transmit data, and this foundational infrastructure is what Hopper what Hopper wants to be. So you can use the Hopper network to send data privately around between blockchain nodes from your wallet to uh, to a blockchain node, exactly like you said, right? So you can imagine that just to pick a simple example, right? Let's say you are sending a Bitcoin transaction. Even when you're a hardcore guy that runs, you know, a local Bitcoin node, your internet service provider can see that you are just sending a Bitcoin transaction. They can't change it, right? So data is secure. Your transaction is secure if you manage your keys well, but it's not private. And this is the part that Hopper wants to add, right? So even if, if Bitcoin doesn't have any on-chain privacy, like we are not going to touch that. I hope eventually somebody will fix that. Sure. But to bring this transport privacy, to transmit data privacy and not let your internet service provider and some other kind of for-profit organizations see what you're doing and accumulate that data and link it to off-chain identities, that is what we want to keep private. And I think it's absolutely important. You know, you mentioned that there's just like crypto is still like a single digit percentage of the population that is engaged. If we want to grow that, we have to grow it in a way that is safe sure. by everyone out there. And to make things that are safe for everyone out there, we need privacy. A lot of people want that data to be used for like monetization purposes. So it's like, yeah, I own my browsing data. I own my geolocation data, my medical data, um, just general like knowledge and things like that. Any, anything that, you, that, your, that your movements or your patterns or your brain dumps should be owned by you, not by these like third-party advertising targeting companies. Uh, is there a mechanism in which that can be done or is it just going to be kind of encrypted from the start in the first mile of the journey and for, it'll never be shared at all? You know, I'm a fan of optionality. Like if you want to sell your data because you want to make money with it or you want to allow somebody else to make money with it, that is fine in my worldview. You should have the optionality, but you shouldn't be forced to give up your data. So as we say many times, privacy is about selectively disclosing. You should be in charge, right? I should be in charge, like what data I want to give up about myself, yeah. and what I want to retain. And Hopper brings you that optionality. So today, as I use any sort of web or web three services, my internet service provider sees everything about me, right? They see my entire browsing history. They see all apps that I use. They do. They see every single time I make a crypto transaction, and that's messed up, right? So. We want you to be in charge of the data that you send um, and then selectively disclose it. Maybe you want to monetize it again, right? That's, that's fine. Um, but you should be in charge of it and it should be exclusive for you. Guys, I am so excited to talk about our newest presenting sponsor, SafePal. SafePal is an all-in-one solution. You got a beautiful hardware wallet. You have this amazing fireproof cipher you got a mobile wallet, an extension wallet similar to MetaMask. You're talking about an all-in-one solution for all of your crypto needs. 
Founded in 2018, SafePal is a finance labs-backed, Singapore-based company, uh, the venture arm, where their mission is to make crypto secure and simple for everyone. You got cross-chain swapping, trading services, and more. SafePal supports over 40 different blockchains. I mean, check this out. Look at this. If you back up your private seed in this beautiful metal SafePal backup here and you keep it in your safe, fires or water or nothing degrading over time, you should not be backing up your crypto on pieces of paper. I mean, look at this. Look at the S1 here. It's so cool. This is the hardware wallet. You're talking, I'm used to using the Trezor or the Ledger wallet, but SafePal is a lot better because not only do you get the hardware wallet and the backup cipher, but you also get the mobile wallet, the uh, extension on your Google Chrome or whatever Firefox you use. So it all works together. You don't have to worry about man in the middle attacks and everything like that. You can go to safepal.com, use the coupon code Charlie, and you'll get any of these amazing products the extension wallet is free, the mobile wallet is free, the hardware wallet and the backup are really, really well priced. It's all super safe and secure. And I love it. I mean, there's no other way you should be using your crypto than SafePal. It's a scary thing because I remember 10 years ago, someone would ask me, hey, Charlie, like, you know, Bitcoin's great, but what if, you know, the internet service providers start to, to you know, ban Bitcoin transactions from from leaving your your home or your phone because the government would would tell them to. And my response would be, uh, because this, this is what I understood was that you can't differentiate the data of a of a Bitcoin transaction versus any other type of internet traffic. I mean, was that and is that true? Can that can it be targeted? So today it totally can be targeted. Shit. I mean, there are maybe ways that you can do in a kind of very hacky way how you can make that a little bit better. But by and large, you do not have what we call metadata privacy. So that is precisely the reason why we want to build Hopper, right? So we want to bring this metadata privacy because today I can totally differentiate if you send a Bitcoin transaction, an Ethereum transaction, or you're browsing YouTube, right? I can see that. And like, that's not good, right? So <laughs> if somebody sees when they make a transaction or when you're about to make a transaction, they can use it totally against you. That's crazy. That really is. I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by that because I really thought it would, there would be a simple, like if I'm using a VPN uh, on my computer or something like that. Uh, but there, then there's a lot of data that I understand. It's just, it's just a different world that most of us don't really understand. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing that I find kind of crazy is uh, when you, you mentioned VPN, right? So many times people think about uh, that, that, hey, I use a VPN and I'm private. No, like what is a VPN? You're entrusting some third-party server operator to keep all this data private. And usually, you know, if you have a free VPN, you don't even have any sort of agreement with them. No. <laughs> no. So you just YOLO and trust them with everything that you're doing and even stuff that you're about to do, right? A lot so of them are selling your data. Yeah, yeah. You're paying them. Yeah, so VPNs is something that, you know, if anyone here is in this crypto space and is serious about privacy and resilience, VPNs cannot be the end, right? There must be something better than, than VPNs. You know, a lot of people hear about this thing called Tor. What is yeah. Tor? How does it act differently? And how is Hopper using kind of like the inspiration of Tor to, to be able to do all of our financial and all of our data, you know, and make yeah. it almost like a, a standard? 
Yeah, so Tor is actually some, some very cool technology that is, as I like to say, one step better than a VPN, right? And how does it get better? So first of all, like quick recap on a VPN. If I want to send data to Charlie, if I use a VPN, you know, this relayed via the VPN. So Charlie doesn't see my IP address and Charlie doesn't see where I sit because it's, you know, I, I expose it to, the, to this one VPN server. Now Tor does it one step better by not just having one VPN server, but you basically have like three servers in a row, right? So I send it to the first, who relays it to the second, who relays it to the third, who sends it to Charlie. So basically these three hops in between obfuscate a little bit uh, where data came from and where it goes to. And I mean, that's actually, that's as good as it gets today. Unfortunately, uh, Tor is not very private. And too many people uh, are telling me, Sebastian, that it can't be true. Like Tor must be private. No, there is really like, you know. What do you mean? There, there's like a decade of uh, research in attacks against Tor. And there's like dozens of known attacks against Tor. I will show you like very, one very simple one. It, I said that there's these three servers, these three hops, right? Okay. And if I want to find out if Sebastian is indeed talking to Charlie, I observe the fingerprint, if you want to say so, the size of data packets leaving Sebastian's computer and coming into Charlie's computer. And it's not just something that, you know, they, they could do themselves, but the internet service provider of Sebastian and Charlie, if they these two collude, or the first and the last node in Tor, they could de-anonymize the users. So they could link the sender to the recipient of data packets. And that is something which is, oh, you know, which yeah. is a known trade-off of Tor. So you could, you, my response would be then like, you can, can, can tour almost like break the packets into smaller ones and mix it in with your other data. But, but by that point already, you're, it's not, it's not. So how, how is Hopper different? Yeah, you're going exactly in the right direction. That's exactly what we're what we're doing with Hopper, right? Oh, so awesome. <laughs> with, with Hopper, we, we're trying to be one step better even than a VPN. So how we're trying to do that is you exactly, as you said, we chop down data packets into small chunks. And these small data packets are indistinguishable from one another. For one, they all have the same size. So you cannot kind of fingerprint these data packets as they go into the network and come out from the network and kind of do some you know, machine learning or some, some crazy yeah. pattern matching in order to de-identify it. And the second one is what Hopper is, is a so-called mixnet. So what that means is every single hop along this route, right? So every single kind of node, which is relaying packets, is mixing traffic up. So it's, the first node is receiving a packet from Sebastian, but it's also receiving a bunch of other packets from all sorts of other nodes in the network, mixing them all up, transforming the packets so they look different, but still indistinguishable when they come out, and thereby obfuscating really where they, they come from and where they go to much better than by just this onion encryption and tour. So in a nutshell, that's what, what Hopper is, is doing. So it's a mixnet, which has much stronger privacy guarantees than Tor. And a second kind of core innovation on our side is that um, you know, we want to make this economically sustainable. So if you're thinking about it, like, is anyone here on the show, like any of the listeners, are you running a Tor node? You could ask. The answer is probably, probably not. not. <laughs> Because why should I, right? So we, we want to economically incentivize these node operators. I sometimes say, 
would Jeff Bezos have, you know, launched these crazy sized data centers if everybody would have the expectation of computers being for free? Probably not, right? So we want to bring economic incentives to privacy networks to bring privacy to internet scale. Like we want many users of the internet that want to be safe out there to have scalable privacy infrastructure and that doesn't work with the expectation that everything runs for free. That's that's a huge aspect of the last 10 years. Economic uh, incentivization. There's been like this third unit in terms of like the relationship of consumer, you know, builder and, and you know, uh, cor corporation employee, but corporation and consumer networks, you know, where, where individuals can make up a larger whole, right? What about, remember, um, folding at home? A lot of people, you know, yes, we figured out the same thing. <laughs> so you're talking about, you're running that? Yes, I was running that. I remember that was back in the way back that was, but yeah. So, so tell everyone what folding at home is. And, and to my point, like no one, like it was, it was cool. It was novelty, but there was no economic in incentive. So what was going on there and, and how has it changed? Yeah, exactly. Actually, the first of these kind of network I was running was called SETI at home. So SETI at home is, is going in a very similar direction. They're looking for extraterrestrial life, right? So absolutely crazy stuff. But the issue is they're collecting this data on Earth with these huge radio telescopes from like, you know, light years away. And they want to analyze if there's any signals that any other life out there in space was sending to us. And here's the issue. Finding out or analyzing these, uh, these signals is really computationally heavy. So you need a lot of, you know, a lot of computations in order to find out if there's any signals in there if anybody's talking to us. So what they're doing is they split the work across thousands of volunteers. I was one of the one of the funny kids that ran that at home. Oh my god! I think I installed it even in my school computers because I found it so cool. In order to find extraterrestrial life signals, and you know everybody got like a chunk of this data and was running that. But as you're saying, the problem is like I just did it because it was cool, right? And that, that's fine. You know, there's a few weird kids like me who do stuff just because yeah. it's cool, but it doesn't run at internet scale, as I like to call it, right? So if you were running something that's more involved, let's say something like Facebook or Instagrams of this world, you cannot rely on such infrastructure that kids run just because it's cool. We need something that is reliable and economically sustainable. And that is how, um, what, what I really like about crypto networks again, starting with Bitcoin, that you economically incentivize somebody to run some software on your computer at home, be it to secure the Bitcoin blockchain, to secure the Ethereum blockchain, or in case of Hopper, to participate in the Hopper network. It's, it's interesting. And this is where I always want to like pause someone to, to, to bring up another uh, part of this, is that economic incentives is not just paying someone to do something. It's creating an economic incentive to prevent forces from doing something. Yeah, that's actually a very good point. And I bring, in case of Hopper, I bring one bizarrely disturbing example. And that is, so what do we do at Hopper? We provide infrastructure for a secure data exchange. Now that's nothing new, right? 
there's been companies uh, providing such infrastructure in the past. For example, for you know heads of states around the world, like top-level politicians to talk to one another privately. And there was a company based in Switzerland that was called Crypto AG. And I really recommend folks to check that out because there has been um, like some, some uh, huge stories around this company actually being owned um, by, the, uh, by the US uh, Secret Service and the German Secret Service behind the doors. And they had kind of backdoors in all this infrastructure. So what this means is if you get something, maybe there's somebody else who has an incentive to do bad stuff with it. By incentivizing anybody out there to secure a network, you're making that way harder. So if you're thinking about Bitcoin as a network, right? So of course, Bitcoin as a network could be attacked, right? It could be people that try to, you know, trick Charlie into spending his his money in, in weird ways. But oh, this is a crazy story, this crypto AG. Yeah, I, I this this crypto <laughs> leak is something that people absolutely absolutely should check out. It's there's it's actually uh there's actually a, uh, a there's a company crypto.ch like a Swiss company and their their first line of their website is we have no relation to crypto AG. This company was founded in 2018 with a different owner, different man. So that's maybe it's the same, I don't know. It's pretty funny though. It is very funny. So crypto leaks is something that I I you know, if you're into this sort of stuff, uh, people should actually absolutely check out. Yeah. Would you say crypto crypto leaks? Crypto leaks. Yeah, crypto leaks. I think it was uh, on a bunch of newspapers all around the world. So if you're not a native speaker, you'll probably find like a bunch of coverage in, in your native language. Yeah. This is really interesting. I mean, you, you, you came from, you studied uh, as a, uh, you studied for your, for your PhD, but you defended your thesis and you, you went through that whole process. Uh, it seems like in, in, in microbiology. I actually came from an engineering uh, field, but I did micro. I did microengineering, so you know lots of these micro technologies that we have been used to build electronics in the past couple of decades. Um, and yeah, so then we 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 use these same technologies for biological purposes. So basically, studying cancer cells, studying some human parasites, and you know using technology, um, yeah, to solve medical issues. Tell me something you wish other people knew about that. Oh, um, yeah. So I see recently a lot of bashing of big pharma, you know. Um, I wish people knew that, you know, to bring one drug to the market that cures people's lives, probably all of us, most of us here would not be alive if, you know, um, if we weren't being supported by, by some medication at some point in our lives, cost a billion dollars. Now, in average, it costs a billion dollars to, to develop something novel, and you need to test an initial set of a million compounds to find one that works, which is crazy, right? So you need to screen like one million potential drug targets to come up with one new medication and test it out all along the way. So that's, so crazy. that's something that I found absolutely crazy when I, when I learned this first time. You have to keep testing and testing and testing and time and things like that. Um... It's really, is there anything that you've learned from that that you apply to Hopper? Like anything when it comes to fluid analysis or anything like that? <laughs> um, yeah, that's tough to say. So also in on that side, so my common denominator was always software, right? So my common denominator was, was always software. How can we use software in like weird fields that people don't expect? So I used software back in the days to like accelerate um, like drug research. And I use software now in other weird ways to more privately bring data from A to B. 
Um, yeah, maybe that's far-fetched. No, it's not far-fetched because you're you're looking at the last mile solution. Like, but but I, what was interesting is that I'm really interested in like the the ability to 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 merge like software and and us, you know, humans. I mean, are we talking about so there's like the world of people putting like chips in their bodies like RFIDs, but that's not what we're talking yeah. about. We're talking about like eventually connecting our our brains to to computers and and things like that. Yeah. People actually people always think that's super far-fetched, right? People always think that you know connecting a brain to a computer is like super far-fetched and that like works totally different. But actually it's not. You know, how our brain works is like, you know, a lot of things are totally not understood. But the neurons, the little cells in our brain that connect like your thoughts and the things that you have in your mind right now, they're based on electrical signals, right? So there's electrical signals traveling through nerve cells to make you feel your body, to, you know, make you comprehend thoughts, which works somewhat similar to, you know, how electrical signal conduction works inside your computer. So, you know, it sounds far-fetched because there's so many things which we don't understand yet, but ultimately it's not. It's not actually, I had this great conversation with someone the other day about this, how going back to to the birth of humans, our brains, you know, our brain, my brain is talking to your brain right now. Our brains control us, our bodies, my mind, my conscious right now. There has been a, a, a pull from our, from, from our brains to just get closer over time, to be able to communicate in the most efficient way possible. And because of that, we develop things like communication, even fire. But going back to now, we develop better health and we develop better computer software. I mean, our brains invented the computer. Our brains invented crypto as a means and a mechanism to communicate better and more efficiently. So imagine in a hundred years from now, if we continue down this road, the things that we can do and achieve, it, 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 get, it frankly gets me very excited to wake up in the morning. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. I sometimes think about this. Think 100 years back. What were people thinking the world would look like? You know, and they'd like, you know, fly like weird stuff. And like, we have this same notion, like even on a time year, 10 year time horizon, right? Like we have no idea. So what 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 gets me going is this thought like, how can we help these crazy people that you and I will never meet that invent the craziest shit in a hundred <laughs> years from now? And they will never meet us, but we're doing shit right now that enables them to do the absolutely craziest invention in a hundred years from now. So you have two choices. You can build something, you know, to bring some bureaucratic procedures that stand in these guys' way, or you enable them to be more creative, to be more efficient, and to do even crazier things than we can do today. And I want, to, I want to be in that latter category, you know, to enable innovation in 100 years from now. That's like kind of the, the goal of everyone's life. It's, it's almost to, to leave a legacy or like a, your, your imprint on the world. Uh, I don't know. If I, when I was a kid, I remember walking down the sidewalk and there was some wet cement and there was almost like an urge to stick my hand in the cement and like leave my mark. Yeah, that's right. And all people, I mean, the, the funny thing about this is like coming back to crypto, this is, this is what you can do in crypto, right? So you can literally like leave, like, like Charlie left his mark in a cement, like you can leave your, your mark in a, in a Bitcoin blockchain or any other blockchain. And I would bet you this mark will be visible in a hundred years from now. 
people will see that that you left the digital mark somewhere in in these early times of of these uh yeah digital systems where yeah. people can leave their footprints forever we're we're in such the we're still in the early stages like the innovation stage we're still early it's only 10 years into it thanks for thanks for taking the time and and coming on untold stories today and and teaching us a lot about a lot of different things and and having a great conversation Thank you, Charlie, and thanks for bringing folks deeper into this Web3 wonderland and all that it allows all of these individuals here to participate. I appreciate that.